Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. So Donald Trump has just by executive order put hundreds of species at risk of extinction, ocean-based species. He's opened 5,000 square miles at the Atlantic Ocean that had been protected habitats to commercial fishing. Jake Johnson writing about this over at CommonDreams.org. Ancient and slow-growing deep-sea corals, endangered large whales and sea turtles, fish, seabirds, sharks, dolphins will pay the price for this in a move that environmentalists warn could further imperil hundreds of endangered species just for the sake of profit. Donald Trump on Friday signed a proclamation rolling back an Obama-era order and opened nearly 5,000 square miles off the coast of New England to commercial fishing. His interior secretary, former mining and oil lobbyist David Bernhardt, said, quote, I love it. We're effectively taking down a no fishing sign in the Atlantic Ocean. The minute you sign it, we'll begin planning. And he did sign it. And yeah, Interior Secretary David Bernhardt's billionaire buddies are just uh, licking their chops. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. You know, destroy the planet and make more money. This is all interrelated. This disrespect for some humans, placing some humans above other humans, this disrespect for our environment, disrespect for dissent, you know, the ideals of democracy. I mean, at all these different levels, this stuff all fits together. This most recent one is really distressing. They are rescinding an order that protected bears and wolves on protected lands so that now Don Jr. and Eric, the big game hunters who are so proud of having their pictures taken with uh, dead elephants and whatnot, they can go up to Alaska and literally uh, go into bears' dens and uh, kill the, the baby bears and, uh, and lure them with donuts and things. Jim Adams, the Alaska Regional Director for the National Parks Conservation Association, the NPCA.org, is uh, on the line with us. Uh, his Twitter handle is AdamsJAK. Jim, welcome to the program, and uh, tell me what the Trump administration is doing here. The Trump administration is rolling back a rule that was passed in 2015. That rule in 2015 said that hey, you can't kill black bear cubs and mothers in dens on national preserve land in Alaska. We have about 20 million acres of that if you're a sport hunter. And we also said you right. can't shoot wolf cubs in dens on National Preserve land in Alaska if you're a sport hunter. You can't bait brown bears, put out bacon or donuts or something else so that the bears get habituated to food and come by predictably so you can shoot them. Again, if you're a sport hunter. The Park Service was kind of forced into passing that rule in 2015 because the state of Alaska has engaged in an increasingly aggressive campaign over the last 20 years to reduce bear and wolf populations so that caribou and moose populations increase for sport hunters here in the state. They essentially want to turn the state as best they can into a a game farm for caribou and moose hunters. And Hmm. as that went on, the state began to pass more and more kind of aggressive regulations that applied to national preserve land, you know, the land that's set aside for protection for all Americans. Uh, some of the, frankly, wildest and most incredible country in the world, and certainly in the United States, is up here in these preserves. But the state started saying, well, okay, 
you can kill bears 365 days a year instead of 90 days a year. And you can kill two bears a year instead of one every four years. So during that time, the Park Service kept objecting to these increased takes and increased bag limits and increased hunting seasons, saying, wait a minute, this isn't what the preserves are for. They're for all Americans. They're not just game farms. Until finally, the Board of Game went beyond just changing seasons and bag limits and said, okay, no, now you can kill cubs. And now you can kill wolf pups on these lands. And at that point, the Park Service, uh, frankly, was backed into a corner and passed a rule saying, no, you can't do that. Our national preserves are actually for all Americans. They're not intended to just be feeding farms for caribou and moose. And um, now the Trump administration, over the course of three years, has been working to reverse that. And a couple of weeks ago, they announced they were going to. So I was right that Don Jr. and Eric Trump might be up in Alaska next uh, looking for things to kill. This is pretty pathetic. Is there any way to stop this? I mean, is this entirely within the province of the Trump administration? There's not a there's no legislative remedy or I mean, what do we do with this? It's a good question. In the short term, the Trump administration, interestingly enough, they announced that they were going to release the rule, I don't know, 10 days ago, but they haven't done it yet. So we're still waiting for it to drop with a large thud on our foot, Mm -hmm. probably at 4.30 p.m. on a Friday because they like to drop things then so no one notices. But once that comes out, certainly litigation will be an option. It's not appropriate for an agency to essentially turn around and reverse a decision it made three years ago after a lot of consideration and hard work. So there'll probably be a legal angle for a bunch of people, but I think also we should be talking to our congressional representatives. I don't think that in the current Congress, this rule could be reversed. It's always possible that a new Senate and House and potentially new president would consider reversing this rule. On a larger scale, are there any efforts to bring back apex predators across the rest of the United States? Or is this kind of battle going on state by state? I know that the ranchers and farmers have always been hostile to wolves and and, uh, presumably bears as well. It's... um You know, in Alaska specifically, uh, the effort is more to keep people from killing them unreasonably uh, than it is to to kind of bring them back. We have really, I mean, Alaska and the United States should be really proud of the bear and wolf populations that we have across the state and on our public lands, particularly on the parks and national preserves. But, um, you know, what we don't want to do is have the state go after them and reduce them. But broadly, more broadly, nationally, you know, as you know, there are efforts to bring back wolves and bears and other predators to portions of the country like the Cascades and Washington. And those efforts are really important for the ecosystems. What we've seen in Yellowstone and other places where we actually brought wolves and other apex predators back is it really makes a difference. It changes everything that's going on. Streams get healthier. Places aren't overbrowsed. Um, different kinds of native birds come back. Apex predators make a huge difference in ecosystems and, frankly, in our experience of the, the world. Yeah, they fit into the, uh, the great web of life, as it were. Fascinating stuff. So, uh, Jim, tell me about your organization, the uh, National Parks Conservation Association. You're the Alaska Regional Director. We're talking to Jim Adams. Yeah, so National Parks Conservation Association is the country's largest nonprofit advocacy organization focused on national parks. We were, I think we just celebrated our 101st anniversary. We were actually created by the founder of the Park Service because he realized after just a very short time working in government that the Park Service and the national parks were going to need an outside advocate. And that is our role. So we work to protect the parks and the preserves that people use, the national historical parks that people go to uh, to learn about the nation's history and um, the surrounding ecosystems so that when people do visit those places, the kind of incredible experience we all expect. Right. Fascinating stuff. Jim, thanks so much for dropping by. Jim Adams, the Alaska Regional Director with the National Parks Conservation Association, npca.org, and you can tweet him at AdamsJAK. Jim, thanks again. Tom, my pleasure. Thanks. Have a great day. Thank you. You too. Great talking with you. 
You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. Back with more of the news of the day in your calls. It's the Tom Hartman Program, talk media for the sane among us. Yes, we're still here. Seventeen days. That's how long it's been since a single new case not a death, a single new case of coronavirus has shown up in the country of New Zealand. They have gone 17 days without one new case. They are on the verge of declaring the island nation virus free. In New Zealand started out, they had 1,154 cases, seven deaths throughout this whole thing. And they have done 294,000 tests, right? They are scrubbing their population, looking for anybody who might have had it. And today, they're reopening the country because they can't find that virus anywhere. Meanwhile, we're at 110,000 deaths, more or less, here in the United States. I mean, this is is the, the breathtaking. I mean, it seems like we've decided that we're going to go full-on herd immunity, right? Just, that's it. Herd immunity. We're going to infect as many people as possible. And, uh, you know, old people and, and obese people and diabetic people and heart disease people and people with COPD, they're all going to die, but that's okay. They were going to die anyway. This seems to be the Republican Party's official position. At the same time that we're getting a a report from a study by uh, epidemiologists at Imperial College London, there are actually two of these reports that were published over the weekend in the journal Nature, both peer-reviewed. The first says that in the United States, because we shut down the country in the second week of March, from that time until a few weeks ago, they just looked at you know, coronavirus cases, and they estimated that we prevented, with those shutdown orders, 60 million cases just in the United States. They said that they, uh, dropped, we dropped infection rates by an average of 82%, which was enough to drive this thing below epidemic rates. But if you want to have herd immunity, you got to have 60-70% of the population immune, infected, and then recovered. Right now, we're at 3 or 4%, according to this study from uh, the, the uh, Imperial, London, Imperial College London study. In fact, one of the researchers, his name is Samir Bhatt, he is the uh, senior author of the study. He said, quote, this is just the beginning of the epidemic. We are very far from herd immunity. The risk of a second wave is very real. And he points out stay-at-home orders, business closings, travel bans actually altered the course of this disease. And the problem that we have in the United States, we have given up. Now, which raises an interesting question. Why? Why have we given up here in the United States? Why did we never do the kind of serious testing that they did and contact tracing that New Zealand used to stop the virus cold in its tracks and eliminate it from their island, from their nation, that Australia is using, that Taiwan has used. Taiwan has had fewer than 200 people dead. South Korea, fewer than 300 people dead. They're using contact tracing and testing. Why did we never do that? Was it just that Donald Trump is just insanely incompetent? I suppose that's a possibility. Is there some sort of weird scientific theory here? We know that, I believe his name was Matt Woodcock, the British health minister for a while there, before Boris Johnson got the virus himself, Woodcock was, and nearly died from it. Woodcock is saying, well, you know, maybe we should just, you know, let's just go for herd immunity. Sweden kind of danced to the edge of that. And now uh, Anders Tegan, the, 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 the guy who was in charge of the, of the policy, is saying, oh, that was a terrible mistake. We've got thousands of dead Swedes. In Norway, it's just a few dozen people in, in Finland and Denmark and the countries surrounding Sweden. Very few dead people. And the countries are still doing just fine. Thank you very much. 
I mean, there's been certainly an economic toll, but their unemployment rates are nothing like ours. But we have a healthcare system that's not designed to deal with an epidemic. That's really not designed to deal with anything. Uh, we have these pre-existing health disparities that tend to be racially based because racial discrimination is at the core of pretty much everything that happens in the United States and has been since the founding of our republic. You've got state and local health departments that are desperately in need of cash while all kinds of money is being poured into police departments and, and not just money. Tactical weapons, tanks, giant devices that produce ear-splitting sonic noises, pepper gas, tear gas, CS gas, CN gas. It just goes on and on and on. And then in the midst of this, I get this email. I've been getting these emails from FreedomWorks, is the group that the Kochs helped kick off back in the day, you know, sponsored by billionaires. FreedomWorks is the group that largely put together and promoted the Tea Party protests against Obamacare back in 2009-2010. They have this newsletter that I've been getting for some time. Uh, actually, Barney Rubble gets it. Barney, this week, FreedomWorks president Adam Brandon spoke with Vice President Mike Pence, who wanted to thank FreedomWorks activists for supporting the reopening of our economy. Even better, he wanted us to pass on the great news that all 50 states are at least beginning to reopen. All across the country, this is from today's, you know, for yesterday's, I guess it was, email. All across the country, Americans have had enough of the coronavirus lockdown. So far, nearly 25,000 activists like you, Barney, have driven over 46,000 messages and over 3,500 phone calls to every state governor, thanking the ones who have finally begun to answer your call to reopen America with a hashtag on it and urging those who haven't to follow their lead. But Barney, we have to keep this up. Americans are done with these tyrannical stay-at-home orders. Right. So have we just given up? I mean, is that the essence of what's going on here? We have 110,000 dead Americans. We have a third of the dead people in the world here. Closing on 2 million, I mean, the best guess is that probably actually 5 to 6 million Americans have been or are infected with the COVID virus. Number may be slightly higher than that. It's still nothing close to what you need for herd immunity. But you've got people who are, you know, obviously the ones who are showing up in the hospitals and melting down as their, as their lungs fill up with little tiny blood clots. But people who are getting the blood clots elsewhere very often are not even being recognized as COVID. They're, they're having blood clots that are causing heart attacks. They're having blood clots that are causing strokes. Both heart attacks and strokes are exploding as the coronavirus spreads across the country. And it's, you know, it's not you know, because people are staying at home too much or not getting enough exercise. It's the virus itself. This is how it shows up. It's, it's causing permanent kidney damage. It's causing delirium. There was an amazing piece. Uh, in fact, I think I retweeted it over the weekend. It was over at uh, NakedCapitalism.com about how IC units are becoming, ICU units are becoming delirium units because the virus, the, 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 the fever and the blood clots into the brain, these little tiny strokes are causing people to uh, hallucinate and, and, and you know, become delirious. Young people, people in their 30s, 40s, 50s, 20s, even if they survive, permanent damage. Is this what we're doing? We're just saying, ah, to hell with it. Trump wants his RNC with no masks, no social distancing. Really? This is the Tom Hartman Program. Why would he do this? I don't get it. Why would he do this? Why are, why are we the only country in the world that's going down path labeled stupid? Pat in Newport, Oregon. Hey, Pat, what's on your mind today? I live in Newport, Oregon, and we have one fish plant company that owns five plants. And as of just a, probably about a half an hour ago, we had a news break that they have tested over 100 cases, confirmed cases of COVID in that fish plant. And I don't know who oversees that. 
you know, being as they process food, if that's under the USDAA, they can't hardly rely on the county health department to do all that because they got to cover the whole county. And then on top of that, the fish plant actually bought a motel in this town to house their employees. So I guess if you don't tote the line, they fire you and you have no place to live anymore. Oh, my. Yeah, I saw the article and in mainly, last night about that. Yeah, it was up to 100 now. Yeah. And, you know, and before the we went to phase one in this county, we had a total of five in the whole entire county. It went up by eight within just a couple of days because of, you know, the Memorial Day and all that. And then it was just kind of flat, and then all of a sudden, bang. Yeah. Shoots up. Yeah. It was 61 the, uh, yeah. as of Friday, it confirmed cases there. And so many of them are coming from that fish plant. I saw that. And, you know, we had the same thing here in Portland with, I think the company was Pacific uh, Seafoods or something like that. And in fact, Louise and I were out driving around. We drove right by that company. This is the problem. These employers, as you point out, Pat, are not taking this stuff seriously. Joan in Arlington. What's up, Joan? Well, I was just wondering if the meat supply is uh, safe at the supermarket, you know. How do you sterilize a bologna sandwich, you know? You, you, <laughs> you yeah, well, you, yeah, yeah, but bologna's been pre-cooked, but, you know, I guess the way that you sterilize meat if you're buying it at the store is you cook it. But you got it's not only carrying, possibly carrying the-, the coronavirus pathogen, it's also carrying things like E. coli and listeria and all kinds. Of, I mean, there's all kinds of pathogens in our, in our meat supply. That's why you have to handle it very, very carefully and cook it very carefully. To you, John. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of people like like stuff raw and all that big E-man stuff. So, yeah, I think it's a source. I think just yeah. preparing it and getting it on your hands and on your table and splashing the blood on the walls that you're gonna you're gonna be um, passing stuff around. That's all. Yeah, yeah. Just a thought. It's a tough one. It's a, it's a tough one. And the easy answer is Beyond Burgers and Impossible Foods. You know the, the, these meat substitutes. If you must have the meat flavor, Jackie in Sierra Vista. Hey, Jackie, what's up? Well, Arizona. Hi, Tom. I'd like to follow up on the previous caller. Is is there any research indicating that the coronavirus is transmittable from sick people working in, in the meat processing plants to the raw meat to people? I don't know of any. Uh, Jackie, and, and we've done research on how long this virus lasts on plastic and how long it lasts on metal and how long it lasts on paper. Um, but to the best of my knowledge, nobody has done an examination of how long it lasts on meat and whether okay. the virus could infect a dead animal's carcass rather than a living animal. And whether, okay. you know, in meat, obviously, you know, at least red meat, mammal meat, shall we say. I don't know if this is true for fish. But certainly they've got angiotensin receptors, all, you know, animals have blood pressure too. And the angiotensin receptors are the places where this virus locks into a cell. Whether it can do that with a dead cell or not, I don't have a clue, Jackie, and I know of no research that indicates that. I'd love to see some, and I think it's a great question. I just don't know the answer. I'm sorry. Mike in Lameda, California. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind today? The uh, Spanish flu, so-called, and World War One. It actually appeared in the last year of the war, took a little dip in the summer, and then came back with a vengeance in the usual flu season. There's a really good yeah, right. documentary on PBS that uh, shows all the people celebrating the armistice uh, wearing masks, because, of course, everyone was wearing masks to prevent spread of the flu back then. Well, and Woodrow Wilson, uh, when he went off to that signing ceremony in Europe, he got so sick that he was out for a week. Yeah. He thought, we may lose him. Flu was a big problem in World War I. Uh, in fact, some wags have said that instead of calling it the Spanish flu, we should call it Missouri Army-based flu. Because it I thought was, it was Kansas. Uh, well, this is, it's hard to say where, because, yeah. of course, they couldn't even detect the pathogen back then because it was viral and far too small for right. anyone to see under a microscope. Right. But, yeah, there, there was, uh, it was a military base that was down the road from a giant pig farm, or at least that's my recollection. I thought it was Kansas. Maybe it's Missouri, but I get your point, Mike. Spot on.
There's a fascinating article over on uh, truthout.org right now. The headline is wildfires can reduce biodiversity. Can biodiversity be used to reduce wildfires? Flipping the formula around. Fascinating thought. Robin Scher is the author. Robin is a writer based in South Africa, contributor to Truthout Salon and the Independent Media Institute, truthout.org. And uh, his website is Rob Scher, S-C-H-E-R himself. What is the relationship between wildfires and biodiversity? I'm assuming that wildfires can diminish biodiversity in that they kill off lots and lots of species, and there's only some species that are really well adapted to bouncing back. And how do we reverse that process? You know, you were talking in your article about how Aboriginal wisdom in Australia, the indigenous people of Australia, actually used wildfire in a way that enhances biodiversity. Tell us about that. Yeah, totally. So, I mean, Tom, you know, that was probably the most interesting sort of aspect of my research into this because previously I think a lot of people are sort of the, the method of fire prevention that involves using control burns and creating fire breaks. And to give an example of Australia, for instance, what was really interesting there was they, on a very small scale, drew on sort of Aboriginal sort of practices and Indigenous knowledge of like creating very specific controlled burns that encouraged certain plants to remain intact while others were burned. Because it turns out that by burning everything, then you actually get rid of certain types of plants that actually can play a really great role in slowing down the rate at which fires burn. Absolutely fascinating. Robin, I'm really sorry. Our connection here to South Africa to you is just uh, collapsed, and and I'm having a really hard time understanding what you're saying, but I want to thank you so much for being on the program. Robin writes for the Independent Media Institute, which I also write for, and uh, this particular piece was published in Truthout, Wildfires Can Reduce Biodiversity. Can biodiversity be used to reduce wildfires? So, Robin, thanks so much for being on our program, and my apologies that technology has not been our friend here today. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com Hartman. That's netsuite.com Hartman. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past, and the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims Bras at Skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select Podcast in the survey, and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. You're listening to Tom Hartman. And welcome back to the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from The Last Hours of Humanity, Warming the World to Extinction, a book about extinction. The climate scientists' warnings have come true. There is more carbon in our atmosphere trapping heat and moisture than ever before in the 165,000-year history of the human race. We are on the verge of the first ice-free summer in the Arctic in three million years. And back then, the Earth was a very different place from the one currently cradling us. 
The consequences of a warming planet are appearing much faster than had been projected by climate scientists of just a decade ago. The most dire warnings, rising oceans, freak storms, and agricultural collapse, they're all taking place right now. And it's going to get worse. The asteroid impact that killed the dinosaurs and started a major mass extinction is the only event having to do with outer space that we can trace with any certainty. And new science indicates that the asteroid impact itself wasn't what killed the dinosaurs. It was the global warming that followed it. New science has discovered a common theme in all of the extinctions in the past. And it's woven right into the global fabric of today as yet another mass extinction threatens our planet. That global consistent thread is global warming. We have had six extinctions in the billion-year history of life on our planet. Each sharp spike indicates one of these mass extinctions. Occurring about 450 million years ago, the Ordovician slash Silurian mass extinction devastated marine life, which at the time dominated the planet. In a series of two extinctions, 60 and 70 percent of all life on the planet was taken respectively. Then, fewer than 100 million years later, the planet was rocked again. The Denovian period was capped off by a 20 million year death march. It killed off 70% of life on Earth. This included many coral reefs, which didn't return for another 100 million years. We know of the KT extinction, the Cretaceous Tertiary extinction, which occurred 65 million years ago, ending the reign of the dinosaurs. There was also an extinction event 200 million years ago, known as the Triassic Jurassic mass extinction. But none of these extinctions explains the huge spike shown in the center of the previous chart. That one happened 250 million years ago and was the worst mass extinction of species event in the history of our planet. It was the extinction of all extinctions. Referred to as the Great Dying, the Permian mass extinction took out at least 95% of all life on the planet in fewer than 100,000 years, an instant in geological time. Professor Paul Wignall of the University of Leeds and an expert on mass extinctions told me that the Permian was the greatest crisis that life on Earth has ever suffered. Only in the past two decades has the cause of the Permian extinction been understood. It was speculated that an asteroid impact may have been the trigger, but more recent research by Professor Wignall, geologists, and other scientists around the world have revealed the true trigger came from deep within the Earth. The Permian mass extinction was initiated by a colossal flow of lava in an area of what is now Siberia. That was the trigger, but not the killer. The killer was under the water and under the ice, where trillions of tons of greenhouse gases, largely derived from carbon and frozen in the form of crystalline methane, lay in wait. Thus, global warming is the force behind the death of nearly everything on the planet during the Permian mass extinction. That point is well illustrated. You can again see the spikes of mass extinctions measured by the increase in global temperatures, with the largest spike representing the Permian mass extinction. Wignall told me, there have been a lot of disasters and crises in the geological past. It's interesting to study them because they may have a comparison to today. He added, I think it is certainly extremely significant that a lot of the main crises of the past are associated with global warming, with obvious implications for the present day. The sixth mass extinction may even rival the speed and intensity of the Great Permian mass extinction. But the sixth is not represented on either of the two previous charts. That's because it's the one happening today right now, all around us. And then we go on to document how the burning of fossil fuels is throwing an amount of carbon into the atmosphere, greenhouse gases into the atmosphere, that's relatively similar to what happened with that giant volcanic eruption in Siberia 250 million years ago with the Permian mass extinction, and how it could be leading to a major extinction event. The book is The Last Hours of Humanity, Warming the World to Extinction. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Climate marcher John in Phelan, California. Hey, John, what's up? Yeah, this is pertaining, my question pertains to the Paris Climate Treaty. Aren't we still in the treaty? Because, as I recall, our signing of it was binding, and we can't just leave because Trump says we're gone, you know, at least That's until correct. after the next inauguration. Is that correct? Yeah, I'm not sure. The date of our being able to stay or not stay in the Paris Climate Accords is not tied to the presidential election cycle in the United States, but it is a four or five or six year you know, sign on that we signed. And I could be wrong. We might have expired sometime this year, but I'm pretty sure that I remember that 
when Trump said we're pulling out, that that didn't become effective until 2021. And okay. so the next president can say we're still in it. The sad part or the unfortunate part, you know, A, it doesn't make much difference because if Trump doesn't participate, if he doesn't fund things, if he doesn't show up, you know, if he trash talks them, whether we're in it or not, technically doesn't matter. But secondly, and perhaps more importantly, the Paris Climate Accords were all voluntary. It was nothing but suggestions. And mm-hmm. all the countries who signed on just said, yes, you know, we agree to salute this flag. Basically, that's it. And this situation is getting dire. And people are dying all over the world right now as a result of climate change. If you think that the economy has been badly damaged by COVID-19, wait 10 years. And, yeah. you know, you're going to see something like you can't imagine right now. And so I think that I just have to knock wood here. I just have to hope and pray, literally hope and pray that Donald Trump will not be president after January 20th of 2021. And that, you know, we've got Joe Biden or, you know, I mean, we haven't had the Democratic convention yet. So you have to toss in the caveat of or whoever the Democratic nominee is, although it's I think it's pretty clear it's going to be him, that that person is certainly going to put us back at the Paris Accords. But by that time, the Paris Accords, I don't know that they're negotiating them right now. But I would be surprised Mm -hmm. if within the next year or two, there's not another round. I think these rounds are every five years. I could be wrong. Yeah. You know, the IPCC rounds where they all get together to basically ratify them. The last one was Paris. You know, before that was what, Rio? I mean, there's been a bunch of them over the years. But it's got to be done. I'm with you, John. It's got to be done. This is a crisis. This is an absolutely screaming crisis. We're talking about, you know, not just human civilization, but life on Earth. We'll be back. Mike in Olympia, Washington. Hey, Mike, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. I was just wanting to address the term climate change and whether you know if that was converted from global warming by right-wing think tanks and whether we should address the direct effect of pollution rather than give them climate change, which now they say, well, the climate changes all the time. And, you know, I feel like we gave them fodder for that. Right. The decision to move from global warming to climate change was broadly across the scientific community, as I recall. This is a question that probably Michael Mann could answer better than me, but this is my recollection. And the reason why was because it is not just warming up around the country and not just warming up local areas. Places are getting much, much colder. You know, you get these bomb cyclones in the winter where, you know, we lived in Washington, D.C. We had a couple of winters out of the seven years we lived there, I think two or three of the winters were like record, record cold. And that was because of global warming, because of climate change. It was because the, the jet stream was collapsing as a result of the, the Arctic going ice-free and warming up. So what they wanted to do is emphasize the fact that it's unpredictable. Some places are going to get floods that didn't used to get floods. Other places are going to get droughts that didn't used to get droughts. And therefore, they're going to have wildfires and things like that. You know, all that kind of stuff. So I don't think that it was a result of right-wing messaging. Okay, I I thought I had read something that they converted because it sounded less threatening. And I I agree. I never actually liked global warming. I thought pollution was a much more direct thing. But I understand all the different... I call it carbon pollution. I would be all in favor of just referring to it as carbon pollution because that is what is producing, by and large. I mean, there's other gases, the fluorinated, high, uh, whatever they are, you know, the, the, yeah, the, the gases like, that they use for like refrigeration and stuff. But principally, it's yeah, carbon. and I feel like that's the more direct threat to people's health. But I just wanted to get that mm-hmm. in because I heard us talking about climate change earlier. So thank you. Yeah, yeah, it's a good one. Thank you, Mike. Chris in Seattle, Washington. Hey, Chris, what's up? Hey, Tom, I'm just concerned about the amount of PPE and disinfectants that we are producing and that we're going to need for this. All of this stuff is produced as disposable. It's a one-time use kind of stuff. And we are using, you know, multiples of what is normal and are going to continue to do that. And we haven't built in, again, you know, not thinking forward, what are we going to do? You know, maybe we shouldn't be using what, what are all these chemicals you know, the amounts of disinfectants that even people just in our homes are using now. I'm hearing that, mm-hmm. you know, the sewage systems are seeing overwhelming amounts of these chemicals. You know, when restaurants reopen, mm-hmm. think about how many we're going to be producing there. And then just like I said, the PPE, mask, paper mask, you know, yeah. thousands and so thousands. So what's your point? Uh, how do we get ahead of this? How do we oh, rearrange we have to bring manufacturing we- back to the United States, in my opinion. 
I don't I don't think that our septic systems are going to be overwhelmed by, you know, people flushing too much isopropyl no, no, alcohol just, down the drains by washing their hands. We're now putting into the um, yeah, environment, period, not just the sewage systems. I mean, yeah. literally, the, you know, the, these came up, uh, hand sanitizer. Um, you know, when are we going to run out of aloe vera to make with it? You know, we're, we're again producing. Yeah. We're not thinking ahead. You know, right now right. we're going, OK, we have to have all this and we do. But what are we going to do in yeah. six months or no, a year? I'm, I'm with you, Chris. Uh, this is the, the, the absolute failure of any kind of planning whatsoever is the exactly. signature failure of the Trump administration, whether it has to do yeah. with, I mean, pick a policy, any policy that they've yeah. been involved with over the years, their failure to plan is the thing that is the signature of their administration. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today in the Tom Hartman Book Club is The Deep History of Ourselves, The Four Billion Year History of How We Got Conscious Brains by Joseph Ledoux. This is from the prologue, Why on Earth? The Deep History of Ourselves explores the place of human beings in the nearly four billion year long history of life. When I mentioned to a friend that I was writing such a book, she asked, why on earth are you taking on such a project? Part of the answer to my friend's question is that if we really want to understand human nature, we have to understand its evolutionary history. Our behavior is part of our biology. And as the evolutionary biologist Theodosius Dobzhansky once said, nothing in biology makes sense except in the light of evolution. That behavior and evolution are interrelated is hardly a novel idea. Darwin emphasized it, as did pioneering ethnologists such as Nico Tingbergen and Conrad Lorenz. The behaviorists who dominated psychology in the first half of the 20th century paid little attention to evolution, but most contemporary psychologists and neuroscientists accept it as a key factor. Most efforts to understand the evolution of behavior, especially in neuroscience, typically focus on the relationship between closely related groups, such as humans and other mammals. There are obvious reasons to do so. For example, since the brain controls behavior, studies of how such brains or how brains evolved in such groups help us understand the evolution of their respective behavioral repertoire and also ours. But there's also good reason to look deeper. For example, research comparing mammals, often rodents, and invertebrates, such as flying worms, are showing results that show the connection between these and also are helping reveal how memory works in us. In this book, I've opted to dive even deeper, in fact, very deep, all the way back to the beginning of life, and even to the so-called prebiotic chemical conditions of the Earth, which made biology and hence life possible. I've always been casually interested in the evolution of brain and behavior, but never pursued the topic with such vigor. Then in 2009, I spent some time in Cambridge on sabbatical and became friendly with Seth Grant, a neurobiologist who I first met while he was a postdoc uptown working in Nobel laureate Eric Kandel's lab at Columbia. While there, he began researching the evolution of genes involved in synaptic plasticity to better understand the biological mechanisms of learning and memory and was continuing this line of work at Cambridge. Seth found parallels in plasticity-related genes between rodents and sea slugs, suggesting that may, they may each have inherited the ability to learn from a common ancestor that lived hundreds of millions of years ago. But even more interesting, some of the same genes exist in single-cell protozoa. That's relevant, since animals in current-day protozoa share a common ancestor that lived over a billion years ago. Some of the learning genes, learning-related genes in our nervous system, may therefore come to us via such microbial ancestors. If you know anything about protozoa, you may be scratching your head regarding these findings. Most people, if they think about it at all, think of behavior, and especially learned behavior, as the product of a nervous system. But protozoa, being single-celled organisms, don't have nervous systems, since that requires special cells, neurons, and they only possess one all-purpose cell. Yet they have a robust behavioral life. They swim away from harmful chemicals and toward useful ones, and they even use past experience to guide their present responses, suggesting that they have the ability to both learn and remember. The logical conclusion is that behavior, learning, and memory don't actually require a nervous system. This was eye-opening to me, so I did a little research to see what was known about the behavioral capacities of single-cell organisms. I found accounts not only of their swimming away from danger and toward nutrients, but also of moving toward or away from chemicals or sunlight to balance fluids or regulate temperature inside the cell relative to its environment. 
Protozoa even engage in mating behavior, sex, to reproduce their kind. Protozoa are relatively recent single-celled organisms, having appeared about two billion years ago, when they evolved from another familiar single-cell creature, bacteria, who are the oldest living organisms, having emerged about three and a half billion years ago. Bacteria exhibit many of the same kinds of behaviors that Protozoa do, but they did so first. They approach and avoid useful and harmful things in their world, and they even learn from experience what is useful and harmful in their world. They don't, however, reproduce sexually. They simply divide in half. Sex is the behavioral claim to fame of eukaryotes, I'm, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that, which evolve from bacteria and which include protozoa and animals. When animals engage in defensive energy management, fluid balance, and reproductive behaviors by freezing, fleeing, eating, drinking, and mating, scientists and laypeople often describe these activities as an expression of underlying psychological states, consciously felt experiences such as fear, hunger, thirst, and sexual pleasure. In doing so, we effectively project our own experiences onto these organisms. Given how ancient these behaviors are and how they arose long before nervous systems, we should probably be more judicious in making such attributions based on our mental states. And then he continues, The Deep History of Ourselves, The Four Billion Year Story of How We Got Conscious Brains by Joseph Ledoux. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Defending America from the conservative weapons of mass deception. Tom Hartman here right with you. And Tom Hartman here with you. Hey, the Defense Department has confirmed what, uh, to quote the New York Times, what seekers of extraterrestrial life have long hoped to be true. You know those videos from 2004 and 2015 by Navy pilots showing what looks like UFOs, in one case chasing them. Uh, The Pentagon has released them officially, and they said they're doing this to, quote, clear up any misconceptions. So uh, it's kind of cool stuff. Camille in San Clemente, California, listening to KPFK. Hey, Camille, what's up? Listening to a lot of mm-hmm, David, I mentioned Sabbatean Frankism as controlling the one percent. They're not even a living entity, but they have an ability to control the planet through holograms and simulations. That Wait a minute, what did I miss? On. Who's not a living entity that is controlling the planet? The Sabbatean Frankism. What's that? Who's they, that? That's what I want to know if you know anything about them. I've never heard anything like this. It's, it sounds Repeated like you know, over. Uh, one of these conspiracy theories that they make up to see how many people will buy into it. Yeah, well, it's, it's part of the other side that I'm looking at. and I Are they, I are they also saying that, that pigeons are robotic spies sent here from the planet Xenu? <laughs> Who knows? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm okay with that. This sounds pretty strange. Well, I heard it's it on a n- couple of different people have been talking about the Sabbatean Frankism, so I just kind of want a heads up. Yeah. I have a feeling they're pulling your leg, Camille. And if they're not, mm-hmm. you know, uh, that, that could be very, that would be very troubling. Thanks for the call. David in Woodland Hills. David, you've got our uh, uh, more or less monthly astrology update, and you've got something about Trump. I would like to tell you what the astrologers have to say about Trump and where humanity is and where humanity is headed. Okay. We have entered the age of Aquarius. These ages are 2,160 years long, so we will peak in a thousand years. Aquarius is the sign of the Enlightenment, the humanitarian, peace on earth. John Lennon's Imagine. Imagine no countries, no religion, the people sharing all everything. That's Aquarius. Aquarius is also the time when we will peak into our brain power. So in a thousand years, it may be possible for us to communicate telepathically. It may be possible to astral travel. We'll know when we get there. That's the good news. We are headed for greatness. Unfortunately for us, we're here at the beginning, and the beginning always indicates extremely difficult times because all of the existing structures have to be torn asunder. Capitalism, religion, patriarchy, racism, it all has to go 
in order for the Enlightenment to take hold. And so many astrologers are coming to the conclusion, and this is disturbing on so many levels, that Donald Trump's soul is on the heroic path of being the great destroyer who ushers in the Enlightenment. We hate the raging forest fire that destroys everything in its path. We love the new growth. And finally, the genius of Aquarius and a question for all of us. Aquarius recognizes that when we all become enlightened and on the same page, that can lead to a cult-like existence. And so it is imperative that the individual maintain their individuality within the collective. And that's why whenever I see people with tattoos and piercings all over their face, it's not my thing. But the importance of their right to be able to do that is my thing. And the question if all of this is true, what do we do about it? We don't want to be part of the destruction. That's not who we are. Even if it leads to the Enlightenment, what do we do about it? I have my answer. I, I wonder what you think. I generally don't so much run my life by astrology, so I, I, don't, I don't know what to say, David. Well, would you like to hear my answer? Sure. Go for it. Well, we have to minimize the suffering as much as we can. And most of us are evolved enough to want to do that. And secondly, we have to be the voices in the wilderness, shouting out to the children and the grandchildren the same thing you say about American history. The highest peaks always follow the deepest valleys. Oh, good one. David, thank you. I appreciate your insights. Thank you. Bobby in Lafayette, Indiana. Hey, Bobby, what's on your mind today? I think the people need to know some of the stuff that's going on uh, with mm -hmm. these large companies. They're using the coronavirus as an excuse to get rid of a lot of their older workers. I myself wow. just got terminated from a large company. Been there 20 years. I'm a certified welder. We took a mandatory two-week furlough, come back, I worked six hours, called in the office, and the first thing they say, due to the coronavirus and the rearranging of the shifts, give me your card, you're terminated, go home. Wow. And you think that they're using the excuse that as an older worker, you're more vulnerable to die from this, and therefore the company might have some liability as an excuse to purge the older workers uh, who presumably are paid more than the younger workers who are just coming in? Yes, exactly. Think about yeah. it. How much liability are they losing these older workers like myself? High blood pressure, medical issues. Oh, we can get rid of him because of Corona now. Yeah. And there's That's other weird. workers in the same company. One been there 28 years. One been there 32 years. Called in the office due to Corona and rearranging of the shifts. Give me a card. Go home. Amazing, Bobby. I'm so sorry to hear that, and uh, you know I, I, I wish you the very best. I I don't know what to say beyond that, but I, I think you're right. I believe that you're absolutely right, Bobby. I got to move on, but thank you for the call. Donald Trump came out and invoked George Floyd's name. He said, the unemployment numbers are down to 13 point something percent, which is better than it was, you know, yesterday, the official numbers. And therefore, he says, George Floyd would be looking down and smiling or words to that effect. I agree with Joe Biden, who came out and said for the president to try to put any other word. He said George Floyd's last words were, I can't breathe, I can't breathe. I actually think his last words were calling out to his mother. But in any case, the effect is the same. So uh, Joe Biden says those were his last words. And then he says for the president to try to put any other words in the mouth of George Floyd, I frankly think is despicable. Agreed. Agreed. To the unemployment numbers, my colleague over on SiriusXM, Dean Obadala, tweeted this morning the answer, and I'm just astonished that nobody is talking about this, the labor participation rate. 
The labor participation rate is the number of people who either are either hold a job or are looking for a job. So it's basically, it's our labor force. And the number of people holding a job or looking for a job is held fairly steady since 2014. In 2014, in January, 62.9%. It was down to 62.8% by December of 2014. It was back up to 62.9% in January 2015. Went down to 62.7% at the end of 2015. 2016, it went from 62.7% to 62.7%. 2018, it went from 62.7% to 63%. In 2019, now this is, you know, more people coming into the labor force because the economy was kind of on a sugar high. In 2019, it started at 63.2% and ended at 63.2%. And in February of this year, it was 63.4%. So that's the total number of people who have a job or are looking for a job. And then your unemployment rate is which percent of those people are looking for a job versus have a job. And what they're saying right now is, well, it's 13%. But the labor participation rate last month dropped to 60%, 60.2. It dropped three points. And in May, it was 60.8%. So when we say that unemployment has gone down compared to the previous months or the previous quarter, we're not comparing apples to apples. The number of people in the workforce has gone down. And it's not because they died off. It's because they've given up looking. There's nothing out there. So when people stop looking for a job, there are fewer people looking for a job. And therefore, (laughs) unemployment isn't as bad. Dean Obadala, who tweeted out these numbers, just in his tweet actually, said it much more simply than I did. And here, here's what he said. You can find his tweet on Twitter, Dean Obadala. Why did unemployment rate drop? Simple. Millions stopped looking for a job. In January, 63.4% of Americans that were in the labor force. Now it's 60.8%. Thank you, Dean. Well said. So here's Donald Trump saying that George Floyd is looking down from heaven and smiling because the unemployment rate has gone down, when in fact the number of unemployed people might have been reduced slightly, but I'm not seeing it, are you? Maybe, you know, maybe some people are going back to work and wouldn't that be nice and all that sort of thing, but frankly, in terms of, you know, reopening an economy, One of the things that we're learning from the experience, particularly of European countries in Israel who have been doing really good jobs of publishing numbers, and South Korea and Taiwan as well, is that most of the spread of COVID-19 happens when there is a person who is infected, typically who doesn't know that they're infected. Sometimes it's a person who's actively sick, but more often than not, somebody doesn't know that they're infected and is shedding virus like crazy in a confined area with a lot of people. These are called super spreading events in a confined area and they're surrounded by a lot of people. And in particular, if they're speaking loudly or singing. Now this is not unique to COVID-19. The same is true of flu, same is true of the common cold, same is true of measles. They're called super spreader events and we've known about this for probably 100 years. We've identified that this is going on here. And it turns out that there's two simple things that you can do that break a large chunk of that chain. One is wearing a mask, not so much to avoid inhaling virus particles, but to avoid exhaling them if you're one of the ones who's infected and doesn't know it. Because if you don't exhale them, nobody else is going to be inhaling them. Because if somebody near you is exhaling them, and you know, even if your mask is stopping them, they're getting on your mask. And if you touch your mask and then touch your face, boom, you're screwed anyway. And, not, and, you know, and the mask isn't going to stop all of them. So we wear masks to protect others. We've had this conversation a hundred times. But the point is that wearing masks and not being in large groups of people are the ways to stop super spreading events. I'm very, very concerned about what we're seeing with these protests. I'm all in favor of the protests, but I'm really worried that we're going to see some real bad infection rates six, eight, ten weeks down the road from now. And frankly, you know, with with Bill Barr 
apparently, somebody in the federal law enforcement uh, chain of command stopping the delivery of face masks to Black Lives Matter groups in four different cities, literally seizing these masks after they had been shipped from the manufacturer, after they had been paid for. These people raised tens of thousands of dollars from volunteers to buy these masks for people to to participate in these protests, and federal law enforcement seized them and is holding them right now as we speak. Now, what does that tell you about the intention of the Trump administration? Just think about that for a minute. Japan never completely closed down. What did they do? Everyone wore masks, and they basically got things under control. South Korea, Taiwan, the principal, the principal mechanism that is being used, Israel, other countries, European countries, the principal mechanism that is being used to prevent the spread of this disease is having everybody wear masks. It will massively, it, it drops that r naught number, the number of people one person can infect, drops it way, way below one. And somebody in the Trump administration, federal law enforcement, is saying, no, we're going to seize these masks. We're going to use our police powers to seize these masks. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 